My name is Mary Canning and I am the Senior Vice President here at the Royal Irish Academy. Uh, we are absolutely delighted to welcome First Minister Nicola Sturgeon and you all here to Academy House. It's a very good morning, I guess, for the First Minister, so congratulations. was established by Charter in 1785 and it's a strongly all-island society in terms both of its elected membership and of its policy focus. I'd like here to acknowledge the work of its North-South Committee chaired by Professor Jerry McKenna whom I'm delighted to see here this morning. So this is one part of our important work because we are an all-island organisation. The links between Scotland and Ireland are many and ancient. Geographically, we are very close. The Mull of Kintyre is at its closest point only 12 miles from County Antrim. Linguistically, we are very close. Constant interaction among our maritime peoples over time led to the people of Argyll adopting the Gaelic language of their close neighbours, the Irish in Antrim. So the Scotty was the name given by the Romans to the Gaelic or Gaelic-speaking populations of both Ireland and Scotland. Historically and culturally, there are very strong links. And this is a, a learned institution, so I know you have just seen the Psalter of St. Columba, the Book of Cahun, of Cahut, which is purportedly at the root of Columba's banishment from the island of Ireland, when he went off in 563 to found the monastery in Iona. The Royal Irish Academy's Dictionary of Irish Biography have over a thousand references to Scotland. John Jameson of Aloha in the central lowlands of Scotland set up the famous distillery. Alexander Nimmo from Inverness built over 30 harbours around the island of Ireland. James Connolly of Cowgate, Edinburgh, founded the Irish Citizen Army in the 20th century. There have been and are many connections between Scotland and the Royal Irish Academy. Currently, several leading members of the RIA are Scottish and have Scottish roots. Professor Francis Ruan, who is here today and whom I know you know very well, was on your Council of Economic Advisors for 10 years until 2018. Several members of the Royal Society of Edinburgh are Irish. Jocelyn Bell Burnell, the distinguished astrophysicist, and Mary McAleese, former President of Ireland, are just but two. We have been honoured to have Dr Bell Burnell lead the development of our own Academy's strategic plan for the years 2019 to 2023. Linkages between and among the academies of Scotland, Wales and Ireland have never been more important than at this time. The Brexit threat to higher education and research is real and one that the Royal Irish Academy, the Royal Society of Edinburgh and the Learned Society of Wales take very seriously indeed. It has been the lead agenda item of our interactions for some time now, and it will probably be so for the foreseeable future. The visit of you, First Minister, to Dublin is timely and important. I want to thank you and Darvon 
for kindly agreeing to participate in this public conversation. We anticipate with keen interest the discussion, and I would ask everyone now to welcome you to Academy House. So uh, thank you everyone, I hope you uh, can hear us both. Uh, for those of you that don't know, my name is uh, Derval MacDonald and about two months ago on um, the original Brexit day, March 29th, um, I quit my job after about uh, 12 years in the front line of journalism and vowed that I would not come back into the public arena um, for at least a year. Um, and I very, very quickly was tempted out of that quasi-retirement uh, in my capacity now as a recovering journalist uh, to interview this woman <laughs> to my left-hand side. My only concern uh, when John Webster asked me, uh, gave me this huge privilege to do it, was that I just thought it's never a good look when the interviewer fangirls the interviewee. So I'm going to try and suppress that because really this lady um, needs no introduction. Um, Forbes have ranked her as the top 50 uh, female most influential politicians um, in the world, the top uh, influential most women in the world and they ranked her as number two in the UK in terms of politics but I wonder now with Theresa May's decision does that mean they're going to have to go quickly back and revise it to number one. Um, a political activist since the age of 16 uh, to defy a teacher who tried to tempt you I think into the <laughs> Labour Party um, but a member of the Scottish Parliament for 20 years so you, you've grown up I suppose with the devolution um, process and the first, you know, so a woman of so many firsts, including the first female first minister and leader of the SNP. But forgive her a little bit, she's had about an hour's sleep. She's simply ecstatic after last night. Like, I mean, the odds even defied the, the mid-30s range that have been uh, predicted for the SNP. So I know you've been up all night checking everything, but uh, how are you feeling? You were saying last night, it's a bit strange being in Dublin when all of this was <laughs> unfolding. It was, it was very strange to watch the election unfold from afar. Um, I got so twitchy at not being at the count watching the votes pile up that I started to uh, say to John Webster that I wanted to go and gate crash an Irish count just to <laughs> get a sense of occasion but he sensibly talked me down from that I think that may not have been the best idea it's an absolutely fantastic result from uh, my party's perspective we didn't just win the election we are polling 20 plus points uh, ahead of our nearest rival so it's astonishing Astonishing for any party, but my party's now been in government for 12 years. So as well as being a very clear anti-Brexit vote, um, I think it's an endorsement of my party's record in government. Uh, the highest vote share for any party in the UK. I think one of the highest vote shares for any governing party anywhere in the European mm -hmm. Union. So yeah, I've got a smile on my face uh, this morning. <laughs> but the lesson, and you know, one of the other or the other really astonishing thing about the election in Scotland last night was the collapse of the Labour vote. Mm -hmm. When I was first in politics yeah. all these years ago, the joke in Scotland used to be that you didn't count the Labour vote, you weighed it mm -hmm. instead. And now Labour polled 9% of the vote in Scotland last night. So the lesson of that in this election is that they've paid a price for sitting on the fence on Brexit. And my party has taken a consistently anti-Brexit position and I think it's fair to say that was vindicated in the election and, last week. And nowhere near, obviously, the, the highs that you reached last night, but obviously uh, Nigel Farage's Brexit party are also making gains um, in Scotland. 
Um, well, UKIP had a seat mm -hmm. in Scotland, and that really has transferred to the Brexit Party. I mean, remember, we use, as is the case here in Ireland, Ireland although a different form, proportional representation. Yeah. So to get a seat, you really only have to get about 10% of the mm -hmm. vote, and they got slightly above that. I think UK-wide, although the story in the media UK-wide will be the sweeping gains of Nigel Farage and the Brexit party, I guess that Nigel Farage privately will be feeling quite disappointed this morning with but, his performance because it's nowhere near as strong as many were predicting that it would be, which is good. And no guarantee it will be replicated in a general election scenario. But when you look across the picture, just kind of looking at the, the numbers last night, I think with about 99% in the UK, they had about Remain parties at 40%. Um, hard Brexit is in around 34%. And obviously the big story, Conservative and Labour, much um, further down. When you tweeted last night that you said that, that the vote in Scotland was an emphatic you know, vote against Brexit, is it necessarily the case that that emphatic vote, as you say, against Brexit is a case for independence? In Scotland. Well, not everybody who uh, voted for a pro-Remain party will support independence. So, you know, let me be, be candid about that. But there's no doubt, you know, in 2014, when we had the independence referendum, 45% of people mm. voted for independence. Um, every single opinion poll, almost without exception, there's been one or two rogue ones, but almost every opinion poll since then has shown support for independence at a higher level. Um, and there are many, many people, I know many of these people personally, who voted no to independence in 2014, who now, if, when that referendum is held again, would vote yes. And that's because they have watched what has happened over the past three years. Scotland, I mean, I'll be blunt about this, Scotland has been treated with utter contempt by the Westminster system. We voted over 60% to remain. Yeah. Uh, we have tried very hard and... Uh, the wake of the UK-wide Brexit vote to find compromises that would protect our interests. We've worked hard across party lines to try to uh, prevent the worst impact of Brexit, and we've been ignored. Votes in the Scottish Parliament have been cast aside. They've even, in the process of the Brexit fiasco, they've taken powers away from the Scottish Parliament uh, in order to centralise how they deal with all of this and there's been a real contrast and people are not blind to this and increasingly people are watching this and drawing conclusions. Scotland's been treated with contempt by Westminster and people are contrasting that with Ireland that has been shown real solidarity and support from the European Union and suddenly you know this idea of being yes a small but a small independent country in the European Union, we only have to look at Ireland to see the benefits of that. And many, many people are having their eyes opened. Isn't there, though, quite, quite a bit to go insofar as, even if you look at some of those polls and, and some of them have been a little bit rogue, but you haven't yet got that critical mass yet. Even one of the YouGov polls, you know, from I think maybe April of this year, and it was yes, 49, sure. no, 51. You, cu you couldn't, I presume, one of the biggest risks for you would be to try and move forward on a second independence referendum only to to win it even by the kind of margins that we saw with Brexit that are not going to be compelling. And I just wonder, do you regret in any respect kind of making that declaration or the promise to try and get a second, the legislation for a second referendum 
within the lifetime of this government by 2021, do you think that there are risks within that and that Brexit actually has caused uncertainty that might cause a lot of the, notwithstanding that, you know, that contempt or the bad treatment from Westminster that might make people stop and say, maybe not just yet, not least because of the economic case for independence, which I don't, all those big tests, like, I mean, even the conflict in your own party with respect to, do you go for a hard, you know, for, for your own currency sooner rather than later? Do you think that there are risks for you to, to perhaps push it if the timing's not Look, right? There are risks getting out of bed in the morning. <laughs> and, you know, I think the lesson of Brexit, and certainly without drawing uh, too many conclusions from one election, the lesson of the European election for all parties is that sometimes you have to be bold and know what you believe in and be prepared uh, to go for that. If I think back to uh, round about 2011, 2012, as the first independence referendum was mm. being called and the date was being set, support for independence in polls back then was at around 30%. Uh, now, you could say we were crazy to have you know, God for it then. We took that support to 45%. So going into another contest with support for independence being around 48, 49%, that sounds to me like a pretty good base uh, to start from. And, you know, I've spent my political career being told, as has everybody in the SNP been told that, you know, all sorts of things were impossible. When I was first in politics, people said there will never be a Scottish mm -hmm. Parliament. It's a pipe dream. Well, hey, there is a Scottish Parliament that's 20 years old this year. Then they said the SNP will never win an election for a Scottish mm -hmm. Parliament. The electoral system is uh, geared against that. Well, hey, we've now won three uh, elections uh, in a row for the Scottish uh, Parliament. And they said there'd never be an independence referendum. There was one and we came very close to winning. So uh, there will be another Scottish independence referendum. And I will make a prediction here today that Scotland will vote for independence and we will become an independent country just like Ireland. And the relationship, the strong relationship between our two countries now will get even stronger still as we sit together. And what do you see as the, the timeline for that? Like, are you going to be the first prime minister of an independent Scotland? Well, you know, I, I'm going to say something that you, you'll all laugh at, but it's, it's not about an individual. It's not about mm. me. I'd, I'd love to be the Prime Minister of an independent Scotland, but that's not the motivator. Seeing my country be an independent country, able to uh, chart our own way in the world and, and be in charge of our own destiny and work with other independent countries in a spirit of cooperation. I am an internationalist as much as I am a nationalist. Mm. That's what uh, motivates me. In terms of the timeline, later this week actually we will introduce the legislation that will start to put in place the, the rules for a referendum and I want to see Scotland having the choice of independence within this term of the Scottish Parliament which ends in uh, May 2021. 20, towards the latter half of uh, next year would be when I think would be the right time for that choice. Which brings us back to London because under the Scotland Act Section 30 yeah. you need the permission uh, of Westminster for that to um, <laughs> unfold. When you, when you just to move to, like it's, we spoke very briefly on the phone last week and uh, Nicola and I came to the conclusion that there wasn't too much point preparing anything because things were moving so fast um, in, in UK politics right now. But are we witnessing, um, which is something that is very pertinent here to us in the island of Ireland, are we witnessing the breakup of the union as yes. we know it? Um, yes. And how does that make you feel? Good. <laughs> Good. <laughs> well, can I ask you this then? Because one of the big cases that we have here in, 
Um, and I know that your government has been looking at our citizens assembly model mm. and looking at how we hold national conversations. Um, these things aren't as easy as switching yeah. on a light um, or, you know, and when you even look at the, um, dare I say, the conflict within your own party around the economic test that had to be met, the fact that when a lot of the projections in terms of looking at an independent Scotland were based on oil prices and reserves that are, are no longer as um, strong as they once were, but also even just looking at the whole issue of the currency and the conflict within your party as recently, you know, as your own kind of conference about what does as far as practicable, practicable look like in that? And how are you going to bring people um, on that journey? Because we have our own discussions here and recently people will know part of our own um, local and European elections was an exit poll, which showed a very, very much stronger as a, someone from the North of Ireland, a much stronger um, support for a united Ireland than perhaps we uh, might have expected. But we know that these aren't easy. Sure conversations to have so when you look at Boris Johnson for example one of the the main don't ask me to do that so I am I'm going to ask you Monday morning for goodness sake because he has because he has attacked uh, public spending saying the money will be better spent in Croydon than Strathclyde so yeah when you look at that sort of you know you're going you're going to have to work look for example who do you think the contenders are going to be well, let me let me come on to that in a second on just briefly on currency the the proposition that my party is putting forward now and you know we're actually very united on this is that we should follow the same path that Ireland followed when it became independent we use the pound which is our currency mm -hmm. until such times as the economic conditions are right to move to an independent Scottish currency so it's a perfectly uh, well-trodden path for independent countries to take. On the issue of a citizens assembly we've been looking closely mm. at the Irish experience on that and one of the things that is you know very very uh, you know acute in my mind is just as we did in 2014 is trying to uh, conduct the debate about Scottish independence in a very very different way to the Brexit debate um, and actually in 2014 it was a very well-informed debate about independence there was a you know a wealth of information available whether people agreed with it or disagreed with it you know the population became you know it was commonplace to hear you know very detailed debates about things like the lender of last resort and you know the currency arrangements you know in pubs and clubs and cafes all across the country contrast that with the lie on the side of the bus <laughs> was the uh, that characterised the Brexit vote. So we want to do things very differently. You cannot make these decisions without having divided opinion. Mm -hmm. Sometimes in democracies you have to have robust, passionate debate that does divide opinion. But I think you can conduct debates like that in a, an open and inclusive way that tries to avoid some of the really uh, deep, polarised divisions that Brexit has led to. That's one of the reasons that we are looking at the citizens assembly model to bring people together to, you know, start from the question of what kind of country are we trying to build in Scotland and work back from that. How do we best equip ourselves to create that kind of country? So, you know, that's one of the many uh, ways in which we do try to learn from best practice from other countries. Uh, and obviously, as our nearest neighbour, uh, mm. then we're always keen to learn from the Irish experience. Do you worry that, um, though, because to quote um, you know, Bill Clinton, a lot of it comes back to it's the economy stupid, you feel that there's work to do on making a credible and strong case for the economic case? We have. Uh, I mean, we've put forward again already, mm. you know, we're not even uh, in an independence 
campaign, well, we are campaigning right. for independence, but a referendum campaign proper. And we've already updated the economic case from 2014. And, and there is this thing, you know, our opponents, those who argue against Scottish independence, say Scotland's got a deficit. Um, you can't be independent. Well, that seems to me to miss a couple of things. Firstly, most countries across the Western world over the past number of years have had fiscal deficits. It hasn't seemed to uh, be a barrier to being independent. But secondly, if Scotland has a deficit right now, it's not because we're independent. It's a feature of how we're governed right now, part of the Westminster system. So it, it seems to me a really depressing, you know, self-defeating attitude to say the way you're governed just now has created a massive economic deficit. So you stay the same and continue to be governed that way, as opposed to saying this is an argument for change. This is an argument for taking control of our own economic levers. Scotland is one of the richest countries in the world. We have natural assets that most other countries don't have. We've got more top class, world class universities uh, per head of our population than almost any other country on the face of the planet. We are an educated, talented population. You know, if Scotland doesn't have what it takes economically to be a successful and a prosperous independent country, then I don't think any other country in the world uh, does have. We, we would more than succeed as an independent country. We've just got to take uh, those decisions into our own hands. And obviously you're struggling with Westminster still to take some of those decisions back into your own hands. Looking across the scene and the uh, contenders that you most likely may have to deal with uh, in due course. Um, who, who, who do you think is going to come through? Um, well, it looks at the moment as if Bojo um, is going to... There was a great rapport, clearly, between yourself and Boris Johnson. Between, you know, I, I, I'm going to not give away, well, I am about to give away secrets here. Uh, it's fair to say my relationship with Theresa May was always a tad strained. Um, but I suspect if it's Bojo, I'll be sort of bring back Theresa, all is forgiven. Um, he looks like the favourite just now, but Boris Johnson, I think, has absolutely got the capacity to self-destruct over the course of a leadership campaign. And I mean, it just, it, it absolutely beggars belief that the Tories are seriously thinking of making Boris Johnson Prime Minister. I mean, this Brexit aside, what has done most to trash the international reputation of the UK over the past few years is his ridiculous tenure as Foreign Secretary. And you now have his party saying, oh, yeah, that's fine, we'll make him Prime Minister. I mean, it is it absolutely beggars belief, but, you know, they've taken leave of their senses, obviously. Um, if it's not Boris Johnson, you are likely to see it be another hardline Brexiteer. Mm. So somebody like Dominic Raab, uh, Michael Gove, all of these people, of course, misled the population of the UK in the Brexit referendum. And you've got this, and this is what makes it difficult to predict exactly how Brexit is going to unfold over the next six months or so. Uh, you've got the Tories who are going to elect a, a harder line Brexiteer, somebody who will, and this is obviously has big implications for Ireland, somebody who will pursue a hard or a no deal Brexit um, on the one hand. And on the other hand, you have a Labour Party that given its UK-wide election results last night is going to be under enormous pressure to come down on the side of a, another Brexit referendum. So to become much more of a, a party that is, if not arguing for Remain, 
facilitating another vote that would allow Remain. So those are going to be you know, the, the pressures pulling in, in opposite directions. And where all of that ends up over the next few months is difficult to predict. Um, but it certainly makes me believe, as I have done for the past couple of months, that there is a real opportunity in the UK to stop Brexit ever happening. Now, I, I don't think that's guaranteed, uh, but the opportunity is there. And certainly people like me will be trying to grab it with both hands. And where, where would you see yourself kind of coming, or the party coming through as a force now? Because <coughs> You know, the, the script is still to be written on um, the impact of Theresa May assiduously courting the, the DUP to sustain her Indeed. majority. So how are you going to work with London? Uh, not with the DUP. Um, no. Firstly, um, well, we, we will try. The, if you read the UK media, the the story you, you will read of the SNP is that we don't want to work with anybody <laughs> that we're really, you know, sort of... Uh, uncooperative, the reality couldn't be more different. You know, back in uh, December 2016, so just six months after the Brexit vote, uh, my government, uh, we put forward a compromise plan. Not our ideal outcome, we want to stay in the EU, but at that point that looked unlikely. So we put forward a compromise plan of trying to build UK-wide support for staying in the single market and the customs union, which would have solved largely solved the Irish border issues and would have not removed completely but mitigated the economic impact of Brexit. And we worked really hard for a year, 18 months, to try to build support around that to absolutely no avail. Yeah. So we've tried really hard to build cross-party alliances and we will continue to do mm. that. So whether that's Labour or the Liberals in the House of Commons, uh, whoever, we will work with whoever to try to stop preferably stop completely, but if that's not possible to mitigate as far as we can the complete madness that is Brexit. Just speaking to that, that kind of constitutional equivalency, so looking at Northern Ireland, looking at Scotland, the rhetoric from across the Mull of Kintyre seems to have sort of subdued a little bit in respect of, well, if Northern Ireland is a special case and, and we are the only uh, country which post-Brexit will have a land border with the European Union, but do you accept that Northern Ireland is a special case, or would you be seeking some of the equivalency if Northern Ireland got special, given that it is a close neighbour but also yeah. a competitor so, in terms of FDI and trade? A, a bit of both, really. I have been um, very, very clear, and, and will always be clear, that peace on the island of Ireland, the Good Friday Agreement, the importance of all of that is absolutely paramount. and. The SNP will never do anything or take any position that compromises that in any way. So in that sense, of course, Northern Ireland is a special case. That said, um, and I'll come on to what the solution to this is, if Northern Ireland, as would happen if the, the backstop in Theresa May's deal that is looking as if it is dead as a dodo, um, but if that backstop ever came into effect, and Northern Ireland effectively was remaining in the European single market when Scotland wasn't. I mean, clearly that has huge questions for Scotland's competitiveness. We, you know, we're very friendly with Northern Ireland, the Republic, but we live in a globalised world. Often we will be competitors for inward investment. So that would have serious questions for Scotland and raise grave concerns. The solution, of course, is for all of us to stay in the single market, even if the UK is exiting 
the European Union, which again is another reason why we argue that single market case so strongly. But which may not um, f come about with uh, in respect of the Tory numbers. You mentioned earlier about um, the UK media and what I wanted to speak to you about was um, women in politics. Um, even more so than Ireland, the viciousness with which um, female politicians are treated in Scotland, but more broadly um, across the UK, is something that is really, really striking. Um, and not just in terms of social media. Obviously, Joe Cox, your colleague, paid the ultimate price um, with with her life. But I was just wondering, how do you look? What are the kind of pressures that you come under? You're obviously very engaged on, on social media and. And may I say very, very robust in your engagements with uh, fellow colleagues, including Ruth Davison and Boris Johnson. But what is it like being at the epicentre of that when you are the lightning rod for, amongst other things, the big constitutional question in Scotland, but those kind of personal attacks? I don't think it's easy for any woman in public life. Uh, I, I don't know how this feels in Ireland, but certainly in the UK, it's a pretty um, you know, tough place to be in the public arena. And the treatment of women in the media, and, and I'm talking traditional mainstream media first, uh, you know, veers from being pretty toxic and uh, nasty at times to being, you know, dismissive and patronising. I mean, I remember uh, one occasion when Theresa May and I were meeting in Scotland to talk about Brexit, one of these many really pivotal moments in the Brexit uh, process. And we had a meeting sitting like this, and the front page of the Daily Mail the next day was a picture of our legs with, you know, forget Brexit, Brexit you know, wh who won legs it. And, you know, this is 2018, you know, the female Prime Minister mm -hmm. and First Minister, and that is, that is what the media tries to reduce mm -hmm. us to. Um, and, you know, women are just treated differently from the focus on what you wear and how you look. Uh, you know, if, if a guy is assertive in politics, then it's a great leadership quality. If a woman is assertive, she's bossy and strident, and it's all very negative uh, commentary around that. So, you know, that's how the mainstream media still tries to, I guess, just keep women in the place they think they should be, or some of the mainstream media. It's not fair to, to say that they all do that. On social media, it is much, much more toxic. and. Mm you know, the misogyny and the threats of abuse, the rape, violence, threats that women will face on a day-to-day -day basis is really, really pernicious. And actually, for somebody like me, you know, who has lots and lots of followers and it all just, it's easier probably to, to let it all pass you by. But if you're a younger woman starting out in politics, then I really worry that that kind of stuff is very, very off-putting and that in instead of being at a moment, which otherwise we would be, of a real tipping point for women in politics and public life, over the next few years there is a danger we go backwards because women just don't want to put themselves into and, that. And you recently domain. said, much to my great relief, that you too uh, um, suffer from an imposter syndrome. You know, they, look, I mean, do, how do you find, I know you've spoken about sometimes the, the loneliness of leadership mm. and the difficulty of that. Do you feel you've made a huge kind of sacrifice in kind of personal terms to to get to where you are and, and what drives that that sense of uh, of imposter syndrome well firstly i i don't i don't think that i've made huge sacrifices to be where i am inevitably you make life choices and some people will see that as sacrifice but i do the most privileged job 
in my country, uh, you know, I've had a wonderful uh, career in politics and, uh, you know, I just think that is a, a huge honour. So I, I don't look at it as, as a huge sacrifice or a sacrifice at all. Um, the imposter syndrome comments I made a couple of weeks ago, which kind of took me aback at how much, you know, attention and, and positive sort of support that that got. I think this is, it's not something that's peculiar to women, but I think it is perhaps particular uh, to women that you do spend, not all of the time, but you have these moments of thinking, do I deserve to be here? Am I about to be found out as, you know, am I good enough for this? And, you know, I think more people than would ever admit feel that in the day-to-day lives, no matter how senior they are. But what I think is important is that younger people in particular hear people like me saying that because you know a lot of younger people and i remember doing this when i was young you look at people in the public eye in senior positions and you think oh, they they're so confident they you know they don't suffer from the same insecurities or personal doubt that i suffer from so i can never do that and if people hear people in senior mm-hmm. positions say actually we all suffer from that then we might get a message across to young people that actually those kind of moments of doubt that we all have are not and should not be a barrier to you trying to strive to do whatever it is you want to do. And another area discussed, which I, which I think was really, really important, um, particularly for women, but for women and men, um, which showed perhaps another vulnerable side of you was uh, discussing your own miscarriage. Mm-hmm. And I know that wasn't something that you, um, you you took quite a bit of time to consider it because we've seen so many these covers you know Europe's you know uh, childless leaders and all this sort of um, kind of commentary but was that something you felt was important to when the time was right to discuss that to defray kind of those questions or perhaps I think women are much more harshly treated in that respect yeah I mean I I don't think any woman should ever feel under pressure to talk about things Mm. that are intensely personal but but equally, I know my experience over the years of, you know, through a period where literally every interview I did uh, of a certain type, I would get asked the question, you know, why don't you have children? You know, do you not want children? Are you going to have children? And so you reach a point where you think, you know, I'm just going to kind of take this on. And again, it's not so much, I don't want to sound here overly kind of altruistic, but it's not so much for me. I'm, you know, I've been in politics a, a long time I'm a bit inured now to all of this nonsense that, that gets thrown at women. But if I can change in just a little bit, play a little part in changing that conversation for uh, the women who come after me, then I think it's it's worth doing. And if that involves, a, on occasion, opening up personally, however you know difficult and uncomfortable that can be sometimes, then I think it's probably a price worth paying. You have, and thank you uh, for discussing it with us here, um, you have been... You said earlier as much an internationalist as a nationalist, and you have been very, very prominent on the international stage, prompting some commentary uh, in your uh, in Scotland. That are you preparing yourself for a newer role beyond 2021? And I'm just wondering, what does the future hold <laughs> for you? Um, well, first of all, this has been a rumour started by my opponents in Scotland <laughs> that I'm planning to go away and work for the United Nations. I think when you look at the election results last night, you see it's wishful thinking <laughs> on their part rather than anything else. Um, I have no plans to go uh, anywhere at the moment. I, I plan to leave my party into and hopefully beyond the next Scottish Parliament election. I intend and hope to leave my party into an independence referendum in Scotland becoming independent. Um, mm. And, and that's my, my plan to the future. Nobody is in politics 
forever but I don't at this stage in my career spend too much time thinking about what comes after I I've got enough on my plate at the moment but you do spend a lot of time reading books I don't spend a lot of time reading books. But you're, you're sort of renowned I, I, for, yeah. your, for, for your bookishness. The, the little spare time I have, I tend to spend reading books. Yeah. yeah. And, and you, th this is just a dream for me to be yeah. in this room right now. <laughs> in this setting. The, you, you, I, I know um, you read uh, Hillary Clinton's book, and one of the things you said you were sort of impressed about was her resilience. Why was that? Because she is bloody resilient. <laughs> I don't know how she has managed to, you know take and absorb everything that she's had not not just in the last presidential election but mm -hmm. right back from the days where in fact this was the case in the last presidential election it always seemed to me that you know she got the blame for the the misdemeanors of bill clinton mm -hmm. <laughs> and as well as all of the the things that people accused and criticized her for and you know i think i've always been an admirer of hillary clinton you know that's not necessarily a a case of agreeing with all of her politics but just as a woman as somebody who shows incredible resilience and spirit and comes back time after time and just refuses to allow her critics and naysayers to grind her into the dirt i think she's a big inspiration well thank you so so much um it's been an absolute privilege for me uh, nicola to uh, to talk to you here today and you can see by the the warmth of reception that it's been widely appreciated here too um if this is what you're like on one hour of sleep Wow, um, and, and, uh, and we're glad you had a little bit of a party here. It would have been highly entertaining had you turned up at a kind centre here uh, in Dublin. But um, wishing you uh, all the best for the future. Thank and thank, on behalf of everyone, thank you very, very much. Thank you so much. Thank you.